Exodus chapter 32, we will begin reading with verses 1 through 6. The account we're going to read about is a blight on the pages of the history of the nation of Israel. It reads like this, this is the word of God. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up! Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next morning and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings And the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. There are four main points that will guide our thinking through this text this morning. I want you to see, number one, the characters that are in the text. Then number two, the corruption that is in this text. Then I want to show you a contrast that is in this text. And then a conclusion that's in the text. So first, I want you to see the characters. There are four main characters that are in the text. I want to show you the people in this text and the relationship between the characters that are mentioned in the chapter. Because I believe there's a specific, graphic, intentional, and very meaningful uh, meaning here. It is both theological and practical. There are four characters. The first uh, characters that we'll see is the people. They're mentioned 84 times. The second one is Moses. He's mentioned 34 times. Then we come to Aaron. He is mentioned only 18 times. And then there's God who is mentioned 40 times. And when you see the significance of how many times the people are mentioned, the people are the significant ones, and you've got two leaders who are leading the people, and of course there's God. And Aaron is mentioned so few times, but he has such a role in the people's lives, and it leads to destruction. Throughout this text, you will notice different aspects of these characters and how they relate to one another. So that's point number one. You think it's going to be pretty fast. Point one is the characters that we see in this text. But the second point that we see is there's a great corruption in this text. Exodus 19.1 says this, on the, third, on the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. We know that by doing the math that this was 45 days after they left Egypt. Only 45 days after they left Egypt, they come to Mount Sinai and God calls him to come up on top of the mountain. While there, God reminds him to tell the people, said, remember that I brought you out and how I brought you out and that I brought you to myself. And then God says, I want you to give them my words and tell them that if they'll obey me, they keep my words, they will be my treasured possession. And if they do that, there will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's in chapter 19, verse 5 through 6. 
So I want to show you how they get to their corruption, how they become corrupt. There's four things that, that lead them down a path to corruption. Letter A, we first see their impatience with God and uh, with Aaron. In, in Exodus 32, 1, we see the first verse there. It says, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves to Aaron. The word translated here for delay, it means to take longer to do something than planned, scheduled, or required. It's this idea of taking too long. It, they were expecting one thing and it, it took longer than what they expected. As best I can count, Moses had went up seven separate times to God. He goes up, he comes down, he goes up and he comes down seven separate times. Six of those times, the first six times are very quick trips. He goes up pretty quick and comes down pretty quick. Six of those times was that way. But in between trips five and six, Moses comes back to the people. He gives God, uh, God's rules and his decrees to them. And they say this, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Moses writes it down in a book. This is called the book of the covenant. He gives that to them. They say, we'll do it. They're, they offer burnt offerings and a peace offering half of the blood that is given is put on the altar and half of it is sprinkled on them this is what it says in verse uh, Exodus 24 7 and 8 then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people and they said all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient and Moses took the blood and threw it on the people behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words so the covenant is ratified the blood signifies cleansing from sin so that the people might enter the covenant relationship and it underscores the ultimate penalty for breaking the covenant, it's death it, it says if I, if I break my end of the covenant, whoever breaks it whatever, if I do that, whatever happened to that animal, that animal died then I must die as well so following this event, there's the description of the sixth trip up uh, God says that Moses is to come up, Aaron is to come up, his two sons, and the 70 elders are to come up. God allows them to come up. They have this meal. They see God. They see a visible representation of God. And then they come back down. It looks like they're ready to head out. God tells them. He had told them in between those trips that I'm going to send my angel out in front of you. I'm going to destroy everybody in front of you. And I'm going to protect you. But then... Moses goes up a seventh time. It looks like they're about to head out. God says, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to send an angel in front of you. But then Moses goes up a seventh time and he disappears. He's gone. And it said, and as he delayed, they get upset. They become impatient. God tells the people he's going to send an angel they feel like it's time to go, and then Moses leaves again for 40 days and 40 nights. In the Bible, 40 represents testing. You have Moses, he was uh, on the backside of the desert for 40, day, for 40 years. You have the children of Israel who had wandered for 40 years. Jesus was uh, in the wilderness for 40, 40 days. This number 40 represents testing. Israel was being tested by God. They were expecting to leave quickly. And then Moses goes away for 40, 40 days. On this seventh trip, they were waiting for Moses and waiting. And he disappears. 
And then if you look at what happens, look at what the description of this mountain. Moses goes up and it says the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire. That's Exodus 24, 17. The appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire. It means Devouring here means to totally consume the way someone totally consumes a meal. When you eat something, you totally consume it. So this fire that was on the mountain when the Lord comes down, it totally consumes the mountain. And they're assuming that Moses is dead. So God says, I'm gonna, we're going to leave and I'm going to put my angel before you. And here their leader goes up on this mountain and disappears. And there's this devouring fire. And they're like, what are we going to do now? They become impatient. So it looks like Moses is dead. And then they come to Aaron and this is what they say, up. And that word means to rise up, to get up quickly, and to bring to fruition. That's what the word means. It's the idea of suddenness, hurry, let's go, get up, and lead us out of this place. So the first step on the way down to corruption is that they had impatience. They were in a hurry, they wanted to go. And then we see the second thing, letter B on the way down, is their impulsiveness. They were not only impatient, God had them wait. They were wanting to go, they were in a hurry, and they were not willing to wait on God. Then they became impulsive. Verse number 1 also says, when the people saw that Moses delayed. This word here for saw, it's the idea that they were being driven by their impulses. They saw with their eyes. They had God's laws. They had God's decree. They had God's leader. But they did not want to listen to God. They didn't want to wait upon God. They began trusting their own ability to assess the things that they thought they needed and the time frame they needed it in. They had God's laws, but they didn't want to wait. They, I can't help when I think about impulsiveness to think about the aisles at the supermarket or in the stores. When you're waiting, you're waiting in line. And what do they do? They put toys, they put food, they put things, gadgets that will catch your eye while you're waiting. Because they hope that, it will, that you'll be driven by your impulse while you wait. That you will buy something that you normally wouldn't buy because you're standing there. That that would catch your eye. That is marketing 101. The word impulse means a propensity or natural tendency usually other than rationale. So they had the law of God. They had leaders that is established by God. When Moses goes up, he left Aaron and her in charge. But they didn't want to wait. They were impatient and then they were driven by their impulses what they could see. We have the same thing happens in the Garden of Eden. If you remember in Genesis 3, 4, the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. For God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, she saw it and she desired it. So it said the tree was desired to be to make one wise. Our first parents had the command of God. They had the word of God that God said, but they didn't go off the rationale. They went off their own impulses and desires. So we see that they had impatience and then it led to impulsiveness, which leads to their insistence. They insisted on their own way. These are the steps on the way down. Insistence is to insist. It's to be emphatic, firm, or resolute about something intended, demanded, or required. 
Moses had left Aaron and her in charge in Exodus 24, 14. So they go to the one in charge and they begin to make their own demands about what they wanted. They insisted on it. We uh, find out in Exodus 20, uh, 32, 9, uh, the Lord assesses them. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen, which means to know. It's a word that means to know. I have known this people. And behold, it is a stiff-necked people. The word for stiff-necked there means difficult, requiring great physical or mental effort to accomplish or comprehend or to endure. So that they are enduring in their hardness. They're pushing through. They have this insistence on evil and getting their own way. They push through to get what they want. You have Moses' assessment. Listen to Moses' assessment here. Uh, when the people saw Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together. It means to, to come against, not just to come together. They come together against Moses or against Aaron and said to him, "Up." Uh, this word means against. They come together in a tumultuous manner to compel him to do what they wanted to be done. So they are insistent on their own way. So we see that their impatience leads to impulsiveness, which leads to insistence, which leads to the final thing, it leads to immorality. In the sixth verse, they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. This word here for uh, play has sexual connotations, the scholars say. Uh, we find more about it in, in 1 Corinthians 10, 8, where it talks about this account. And verse 8 says this, We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. So the New Testament even tells us about this and adds lie. R.C. Sproul says this, talking about this word for rose up to play. They rise up from their meal to engage in, in a, what is probably a fertility cult orgy. And he says the bull god Apis was the Egyptian god of fertility from which this idol was likely fashioned. So this led to great immorality. But it's not just in the text. Hear God's assessment. In verse number 7, the Lord said to Moses, Go down from your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt. They have corrupted themselves. They have ruined themselves. They have dirtied themselves. That's God's assessment. But then look here at Moses' assessment. Verse number 8. Well, the, look, God continues on and says, They've turned aside quickly out of the way that I've commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf, and they have worshipped it and sacrificed to it. And then we come to Moses' assessment. Verse number 25, Moses said this, he, When Moses saw that the people had broken loose, part of that word means to run wild. That they had ran wild. They, they had come into immorality, to gross immorality. They first had become impatient with God. And then that led down the line to where they had impulsiveness that led to their own insistence that led to immorality. We have to be careful ourselves that we don't become like that. It's a step down. You step down and step down that can lead to immorality. So we see first the characters. We see the four characters. And then we see the corruption and how they got to corrupted, cor corruption. But now I want you to see the contrast. This chapter sets forth a stark contrast between two leaders. Two types of leaders actually. 
Two categories of leadership are laid side by side for comparison in this text. You have Aaron who is a weak leader. And you have Moses who is a strong leader. I want to show you just a few contrasts. Aaron was led by the people. And Moses led the people. The people tell Aaron up. Make us gods who shall go before us. And he did exactly what they told him to do. Verse number 4. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. He did what they said. Should he have? Should he have stood up to them or should he have done what he said? He was a weak leader. Moses led the people. And the people followed Moses. The people watched Moses go up the mountain and come back down. And he would instruct them and they would obey. He would warn them and they would obey. Moses, he he corrects them and he corrects Aaron. He was a leader. You might say, well, Aaron did tell them, give me the gold. So he instructed them and they obeyed. It's not leadership and it's not submission when people do what they already want to do when you tell them. It's not submission if I tell Lori, let's go to Burger King, and she already wanted to go to Burger King. They did not submit to him. Listen, it's it's most likely that Aaron was being passive-aggressive in this text. If you look, when Aaron tells them... Uh, to bring the gold, he is likely being passive-aggressive. From all of the things that I could find in my study, most of the idols that you will find were not built out of gold in Egypt. So that whenever idols weren't typically made out of gold, Aaron is likely thinking that if he asks for this valuable thing for them to bring, that they won't want to give it. So he's being passive-aggressive instead of standing up to them and saying, this should not be done. I'm going to ask for something valuable so that they won't want to give it. He's passive-aggressive. But also, he should have said, he should have pointed back to God's law and the covenant that they've already made and said, if you break it, you will destroy yourself. But he doesn't do that. He's passive-aggressive. Also, in the term for take off, when he said, take off the rings of gold that are in your ears, your wife's ears, the word for take off means to break off, tear away, or tear off violently. This is not the typical word that's used for taking something off. It's the idea it's used to show, it's this idea, rip it out. And that's not what you would do. Rip it off. It's the idea he's telling them in a passive-aggressive way, you're being rash in what you're doing. You're being too quick here. But he should tell them, you're not doing what's right. He's being a weak, passive-aggressive leader here. He's not leading the people. They only followed the instruction that lined up with what they wanted to do. And Aaron was not truly leading the people. He was letting them do their own thing. So that's the first contrast. It also is number two, the second contrast. Aaron got annoyed with the people and then Moses had true anger and we're going to see what it led to. Aaron seems aggravated and annoyed with the people because of everything and how it affected him. And not for the name of God and not for how it affected the people, not what the sin would do to the people as a whole. 
And Moses is angered by what angers God and is concerned truly about the people. And you'll see that. In, uh, you remember what Michael talked about last week about the nose of God, the anger of God and the nose of God. It's in this text. In verses, in, uh, verses 10 and 11 and 12, it says, Now therefore, this is when God and Mo- Moses is before God, and God says this to Moses. He's angry. He says, Now therefore, let me alone that my wrath, that's the word for nose, that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may, that I may make a nation of you. I'm going to start over and make you the new Abraham. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, Oh Lord, why does your wrath, same word for nose, burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and consume them uh, from, from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger, the same word for nose, and relent from this disaster against your people. Okay, so you've got this, God's mad, he's angry. Well, when Moses comes down from the mountain and he's got the tablets and he comes down and he sees what the people are doing... What happens? He gets angry and it uses the same word for God. He says, and as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger, the same word for nose, his anger burned hot and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He is mirroring here. Moses' nose mirrors God's nose. Moses is angered by what angers God. Aaron gets just aggravated and upset because they won't leave him alone. And instead of handling it right. But Moses is angered by what angers God. It's symbolic of the greater Moses. That's what Jesus was. Jesus was angered by what angered the Father. Then we see Aaron attached God's name to an idol. Where Moses defended God's reputation and destroyed the idol. Aaron had syncretism. He was blending the two together. He attached God's name to the calf. In verse 5, he said, When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. He said, "We're going. here's the calf, and this is where we're going to worship the Lord. He was merging the two together and blending them. And Moses, Moses was concerned about the name and reputation of God. How would this look to the Egyptians if God destroyed his people? And then he appeals to the covenant that God made with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They had already broke the covenant, but he appeals back to the covenant God made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He was concerned about the reputation of God and the name of God. Aaron wasn't. He merged it with the calf, but Moses was concerned about the name of God and the reputation of God. And I love that when you look at what is happening, what's going on here, God has the covenant with the people. When he brings them to to the mountain there at Sinai, he says, If you will obey my voice, you will be my people. He makes the covenant with them. In the, in the covenant, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not have any graven images. What did they do? They broke the covenant. God says, if you keep my word, you will be my people. When he's on the mountain, God is talking to Moses. God calls them your people to Moses. If you keep my word, you'll be my people. God tells Moses, these are your people. 
They broke, the, they broke my covenant. They're not mine anymore. And then when Moses talks to God and God relents, he's called God's people right after that. Oh, the mercy that God has that we should not be his people. He calls Israel his people again. God is still merciful in this. But it's because Moses is appealing back to the covenant with Abraham that God had made. Because Moses was concerned about the name and the reputation of God. The fourth contrast is that Aaron threw the people under the bus and Moses stepped in front of the bus for the people. Look at how each of them spoke about the people. Aaron separates himself from the people and blames things on the people and takes no responsibility. He says in verse 21, uh, Moses said to Aaron... What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, "Let the e the anger of my lord uh, let not the evil the anger of my lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. You know these people. He throws them under the bus. You know how they are. You've led them a long time. For they said to me." Make us gods. He focuses on what they said, shifts the blame to them, make us gods. Uh, and then he, then he talks about what he said. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me and I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. It jumped out of the fire. I didn't have anything to do with it. He threw them under the bus and minimized what he had done. He had fashioned it, but he said, it just jumped out. He threw them under the bus. That's what a weak leader does, whether it's in the home or in the church or in the civil government. Moses had said to him, what did the people do to you that you had brought such a great sin upon them? Then you look in verse number 25. Moses saw that the people had broken loose. For Aaron had let them break loose. The word here for break loose means to let free. To make someone go out of control. Allow to run wild. To leave unattended to the derision of their enemies. So he had, it was because of Aaron. He, he let them go. He let them go free. He's supposed to have structure and order and be over them. But it's because of him that they ran wild and ran free. But Moses interceded for the people where, where he threw them under the bus. Moses goes before God not once but twice. The first time we've already read about where he implores God not to kill them. He says, no, no, don't start over with me. Don't kill them. And God has mercy. He relents. But then the second time, says, so Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. He didn't minimize their sin. But he didn't throw them under the bus neither. He says, they have made for themselves gods of gold. He said, but now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of the book that you've written. If you're going to kill them, kill me too. He steps in front of the bus. Boy, who does that remind you of? There's a greater Moses that did the same thing in a greater way. Moses acknowledged their sin and asked God to forgive them. If not, kill me with them. Aaron blamed them and separated himself from them. Moses acknowledges their sin, but he is numbered with them and says, kill me too. Number five, Aaron builds the idol for them and Moses destroys it for them. Number four, we've seen he fashioned it with a graving tool and made the golden calf. 
He built an altar before it as well. But then in verse 20, we see what Moses done. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. Man, there's so many more contrasts we can talk about. We just don't have time. Aaron helped them advance their idolatry, breaking the covenant with God. Aaron attached God's name to it. But Moses separated the two, destroyed it, burned it, crushed it, poured it on the water, made them drink it, and expelled it from them, literally. It's the difference between a weak leader and a strong leader. So we've seen the characters. There's the people. There's Moses. There's Aaron. There's God. Then we see the corruption. It comes from their impatience, their impulsiveness, their insistence, and their, it leads to their immorality. Then we see the contrast between Aaron and Moses, which leads us to the conclusion. Takes us to the end. How did this story end? The weak leader let the people break loose. Remember that means to, to let free, to make someone go out of control, to allow to run wild, to leave unattended. Aaron let them have exactly what they wanted, even if it wasn't good for them. And what did that lead to? It led to impatience, that led to, ins- to insistence, that led to impulsiveness, that led to immorality, that finally led to their corruption. But then where does corruption lead? Corruption doesn't end well. It brings devastation to both individuals, families, and nations. We see in verse 26, it says, Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from the gate to gate throughout the camp. And each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. That's not the end. We go to the last verse in this chapter and it says, Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf. And this phrase, the one that Aaron made. But it says no more here. It doesn't say what happened in this plague. But the New Testament helps us out. The New Testament tells us more in a warning against idolatry in 1 Corinthians 10. Paul talks about what happened on this day. Um, verses 7 and 8, there's more leading up to it that tells us this is the event he's talking about. But 7 and 8 tell us, tells us this, Do not be idolaters as some of them were. <clears throat> as it is written, the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. Corruption has dire consequences. Strong leadership helps topple idolatry, intercedes for its people before God, lessening its destructive fallout, and helps it expel from its people. Weak leadership is led by people's perceived needs, advances idolatry, and brings judgment from God. So how do we apply this? So many ways we could talk about. Everyone here is affected by leadership. Whether you're in leadership now or you're aspiring towards leadership, 
Hopefully you can see you need to be a strong leader. You don't want to be a passive leader who leaves those under your charge to themselves. You don't give them everything they think they want. You stand for God, with God's truth, all the while interceding for them, being willing to give your life on their behalf. You're there to prevent idolatry, point them to the one true God, and help them destroy any remaining sin in their life. For those under leadership, surely you can see you don't want to follow a weak leader. Surely you see you don't want to make it difficult for those in charge over you. I've seen many telling shepherds in their life how to shepherd them. Whether it's in the home or the church. Telling them what they want and how they want it. Don't just gravitate to those who give you what you think you want. Look for those who will help you destroy the idols and the sin that remains in your life. Not those who will further it. You want someone who will protect you from idolatry, point you to the one true God, and will destroy the remaining sin in your life. And we also need help from our brothers and sisters with our sin. In the Great Commission, we're told that discipleship is, right, Jesus has all authority. He says, go make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them to do what? Observe to obey everything I've said. The Christ of the Word and the Word of Christ has all authority over every one of us. And as our brother and sister uses their prophetic responsibilities toward us, we are to hear them. And they're helping us to remove sin in our lives. But as we close, I want to finish with one final contrast. It doesn't end with Aaron and Moses. Aaron and Moses is only a representation of two other people. The greater contrast in this, passion, in this passage is a contrast between Adam and Christ. Aaron let the people break loose. Like Aaron, Adam let Eve break loose in a similar way. Remember, he's standing right there watching Eve as she's talking to Satan. She was deceived. He abdicated his responsibilities and that plunged the whole world into corruption and into ruin. Moses came down from God, mirroring his attribute, was numbered among the people, even in their transgression, interceded on their behalf, dealt with their idolatry, and expelled it from them. Jesus is the greater Moses, who came down from God, mirroring his attributes, was numbered with the people, interceded on their behalf, all to deal with our idolatry problem. What a contrast. From the moment they were redeemed out of Egypt, Israel worshipped other gods. There is an interesting and important representation that runs through the Old Testament concerning the process by which idols were removed from God's people. Moses tells of this event that happened in Deuteronomy 9.21. He says, Then I took the sinful thing, the calf that you had made, and burned it with fire and crushed it, grinding it very small until it was fine as dust. And I threw the dust of it into the brook that ran down from the mountain. And you're going to see a contrast. As we're closing, there's a contrast. Uh, there's this uh, thing that happens when idols are destroyed in the Kidron Brook. 
It sets the stage for actions by good kings throughout Israel's history. Each and every time that the Lord raised a righteous king to deliver his people from the practices of idolatry and their enemies, they would remove the idols from the land in a similar way to what Moses did. You see it? I'm not going to read the scriptures, but uh, Asa did it in his day, 1 Kings 15. Josiah did it. Uh, Hezekiah did it. Uh, it's so many of these different ones do it. The pattern of crushing idols uh, and idolatr- uh, idolatrous altars and throwing them into the Kidron Brook was symbolic. It represented how God would permanently remo- remove idolatry from the lives of His people. You have the same symbolism when Jesus goes out after uh, He has the Last Supper. He steps across the Kidron Brook. Same way that David did. When both were being betrayed, they go across the Kidron Brook. You find that in John 18. He crossed over the Kidron Brook almost a thousand years before David did the same thing. It is constantly said to be the place where the idol dust was poured. Jesus Christ crushed the idols of his people underfoot when he went to the cross. It was there that the stronghold of idolatry was finally broken. Our idols are maybe more sophisticated than what they were in Israel. But there's still no match for the righteous king. He has finally reformed his church forever. By offering himself, he has forever perfected those who are being sanctified. Christ has given himself for us that he might purify us for himself, his his own special people, finally for good works. Matthew Henry says this on John 18, 1. The godly kings of Judah had burnt and destroyed the idols they found at the brook Kidron. He lists these same passages that I mentioned. Into that brook the abominable things were cast, Christ being now made sin for us, that he might abolish it and take it away, began his passion by the same brook. Christ is the greater Moses that finally crushed our idolatry and it was, they would put it in the brook and it would be taken away from the people. And that's what Christ did for us. There's nothing special about the brook. It's simply a redemptive historical marker of the destruction of idolatry. So what's the answer to our problem of idolatry? We are completely dependent on the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf. Idolatry is, in its essence, worshiping and serving the, create, the creature rather than the creator. In order to cure this evil, the Creator created a body for Himself, entered creation to save us from our sin. The incarnation is the solution to idolatry. Jesus Christ, it's interesting to note that the Apostle John ends his first epistle talking about idolatry. He talks about it in that discourse that the central importance of the doctrine of Christ, the two natures of Jesus Christ, and His atoning death on the cross, it is the explanation of the abiding significance of the incarnation. At the end of his epistle, he abruptly charges, Little children, keep yourself from idols. The only way to make sense of this abrupt conclusion is to read it in light of John's emphasis on the incarnation. How are we to keep ourselves from idols? We must abide in the doctrine of the Son of God who came in the flesh. Christ is the one to come to crush our idolatry and to take it away from us. So that takes us now to the table. 
Moses read the book of the covenant to the people. Israel said, we will obey everything that he has said. And the blood was thrown on the altar and on the people. The covenant was sealed. Then we read of this horrible, idolatrous account in Exodus 32. They broke the covenant. Time and time again, they broke God's laws. They would go back into idolatry. So has every son of Adam. So where's our hope? There's been a new covenant made. Adam did what Aaron did, but the greater Moses came and God spoke of a new covenant. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them. Just having it externally, it doesn't help them. They can't obey it. I will put it in them. And I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. How does God accomplish this? How does he do it? Ezekiel 36, 25 through, through uh, 27. I will sprinkle clean water on you and I will, shall cl uh, clean you from all your uncleanness and from your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and, I will, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. They couldn't do it to save their lives. But he made a new covenant. And Christ came. And then we have in Luke 22, Jesus says this when he's before his disciples. And, and likewise, the cup after he had eaten, saying, This cup is poured out for you. It is the new covenant in my blood. That he's going to give his life for a ransom. <coughs> Pour out his blood, his, his broken body and his shed blood. This was the blood that was not the animals that were sacrificed. It was symbolizing him coming to give his life for his people. Then he says in Matthew 26, this same event. So he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. said, drink you all of it for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for, the, for many for the forgiveness of sins. Aren't you glad that he didn't just, he could have ended it all. He could have ended it in the garden. But he didn't. He made a way. To forgive us, to deal with our idolatry. And the, the greater Moses came. We could have had Adam threw us under the bus. But we have a greater Moses that came, that was numbered with the people, that took our idolatry, that took our sins, was numbered with us. And because of that, because of that sacrifice, God forgave us and saved us. And now we can come to the table. We can take, we partake of his blood and his body because of what he did. Aren't you thankful? I know I am. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity to, 
to uh, be reminded of your faithfulness to your plan, uh, to the Godhead, uh, to your people that you've made the promise to. I pray, Lord, that we would have a heart of thankfulness as we come to the table this morning. That we are reminded of how good and gracious that you are in sending your Son into the world. That He uh, is this strong leader. And I pray that we would uh, fall in line and honor Him. And that God, that we'd live in light of even His example as we lead our families. God, that as we uh, are here in the church, that we would lead like Him and under His authority. We're so grateful for the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in His name that we praise You and honor You and we ask these things. And amen. Here at Manorville Fellowship, you know we extend the table to those who are in a covenant relationship here. And to those that are in a covenant relationship to like-minded churches. And who are recommended to the table by our members here that know them. Uh, This morning, the only ones I know of that we have is uh, Caleb and Lindsay Stomberg. They're from Legacy Reformed Baptist Church. Is that correct? Did you get that right? Okay. Uh, We'll be welcoming them. I don't know of anyone else uh, that's in that uh, that boat. So... uh, uh, just search your hearts and as we, uh, we come, uh, let's come with thankfulness for what Christ has done in dealing with our sin problem, our idolatry, that we have partaken of the eternal covenant and that he has dealt with that through his blood. Uh, let us come. Amen. Thank you for that. Let's all stand together as we prepare to come. I've seen immovable. I've Praise God for our idolatrous hearts, giving us new hearts to love Him, serve Him. Let's sing this loudly together as we come. Mm-hmm.